Hi, everyone, and welcome to the HR Works Podcast, brought to you by HR Daily Advisor. I'm your host, Josh Zygmunt, Content Director for Simplify Media. The HR Works Podcast provides clear, relevant, and actionable information on topics that matter to you, the HR professional. When you're armed with the best practices and strategies to attract, retain, and engage top talent and deliver exceptional service to your organization, HR just works. On today's episode, we're joined by Alexandra Levitt, workforce consultant, author, speaker, and founder and CEO of Inspiration at Work, a woman-owned futurist consulting business. Alexandra specializes in the future of work, technology adoption, the millennial generation, gender differences and bias, and the skills gap. You may know her as a nationally syndicated columnist for the Wall Street Journal, and she is currently the anchor of their feature column, The Workplace Report. Alexandra has authored several books focused on the talent market, including bestsellers, They Don't Teach Corporate in College, Humanity Works, Merging People and Technologies for the Workforce of the Future, and her latest release, Deep Talent, How to Transform Your Organization and Empower Your Employees Through AI. She consults with several Fortune 500 companies and government agencies on all things HR and leadership, as well as countless career and workplace trends. And if that's not impressive enough, Alexandra also serves as a media spokesperson for well-known outlets such as NPR and CNN. So look, if you're keeping up with conversations and thought leadership in the world of people operations, you're bound to run into Alexandra, and we're excited to have the opportunity to chat with her today as we take a look at the latest wave of 2023 graduates entering the workforce, understanding what sets them apart, and how they can be the key to your organization's next round of success. So without further ado, let's get Alexandra introduced to the podcast. Alexandra, welcome to the HR Works podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Josh. It's great to be here. Well, it is fantastic to have you. I'm really excited to dive into looking at the 2023 graduates who are entering the workforce, understanding those trends, what sets them apart. But before we do that, let's get introduced. Again, I gave you a quick intro here, but if you don't mind sharing with our audience of HR professionals, what led you to pursuing a career focused on workforce development and the future of work? Sure. Well, some of your audience, I've been in the HR space a little bit of time now, and some of your audience has probably heard this before, but I got into the world of HR based on some early problems that I had in my career. I went out into the workforce as a very high achieving college student and pretty much crashed and burned. My first several jobs were a train wreck. And so one of my bosses took pity on me and sent me to a personal development class called Dale Carnegie. And as a result of that course, I learned how to be a successful professional in the business world after falling on my face for about two and a half, three years. And at the time, I'm, I'm in kind of an interesting age group. I'm at the very tail end of Generation X. That's a very small group of people. And there wasn't anything around that was out there for this group of people to teach them how to be successful in business. So I was like, wow, someone should write a book for 20-somethings teaching them how to make the transition from being a high-achieving college student to how to be a successful business professional. There wasn't anything out there for people my age at the time. So I decided to write that book. And that book was called, They Don't Teach Corporate in College, which you mentioned. And I, I put the book out there at the time. I didn't really expect anything to come of it because once I took Dale Carnegie, I had finally gotten my footing um, in the work world. I, I had been able to be happy and reasonably successful in my job. But the book, much to my pleasure and surprise, started to do well because there was this new group of 20-somethings in town that was just a couple of years younger than me. They were called the Millennials, and they were a huge generation. And when they came out into the workforce, they were making a huge splash because they wanted to do things a little bit differently than other generations. And that was when I established a whole new career 
as a business and workplace author, speaker, consultant, suddenly people were asking me about the millennials. What did the millennials need? What were they going to do in the future? What kind of managers were they going to be? And at the time, of course, I didn't know any of this. I just was a kid who had written a book and researched it and talked to some people. And over time, I had to develop an expertise around trying to make an educated guess about what this group of people was going to do next. And that became the, the foundation, the scaffolding for my later career as a futurist. And for people who think the term futurist is a little bit intimidating, all it really means, a futurist is someone who looks at trends that are percolating up through the market, through society, and in my case, the workforce, and tries to make an educated determination about what has the greatest potential for disruption. And at the time, I was kind of doing this in sort of a bootstrappy kind of way. People were asking me, okay, well, what are the millennials gonna do next? And when they were 20 somethings, that just required me going out to my network of millennials and asking a lot of them, doing the research and then putting together what are known as forecasts. And I was doing it informally for a long time. And in the world of, of being a futurist, really the only way to know if you're any good at it is to wait. That's it. It's not very scientific. And so I've just been in this space a, a, a long time now. And so I would I started off making forecasts about millennials. And then over time, I broadened my scope to include other workforce issues such as, OK, well, what's what is the work structure going to look like in future world of work? And I did some of this prior to the pandemic and made some forecasts about what the world of distributed work and remote work was going to potentially look like. and. Over time, I got a certification in strategic foresight. That's the, the body of work that futurists focus on. And it's really been a lot of fun. Uh, but I like to say we don't have crystal balls. We can't predict anything with certainty. It's just a matter of um, being looking around corners and trying to uh, really make, make things make sense, <laughs> essentially, according to what we're seeing around us. And really, I think HR people are in a really, really unique place to be mini futurists for their organizations. And uh, never has there been a better time because HR people are being listened to and respected in a way in the organization that they've never been before. So I look forward to educating more and more people about what it means to be a futurist in your organization. I love that, Alexander. And that's a great way to get us kicked off. Even sharing again that original story that you went through your own crash course to really find that space to find your passion and came up with the book, came up with a a guideline for how to figure it out, how to make that jump from college to corporate and have led that path now into a great career as a futurist. I think you're our first futurist on the podcast, certainly the first that I've spoken with. As you mentioned, in the HR space, we're almost mini futurists and trying to make predictions of where the workforce is going, but really excited to delve in with a true futurist like yourself and see again where those trends are headed in the workforce. So we're having this conversation in mid-June 2023. A lot of college graduates have now entered the workforce or are looking for those new opportunities, their first opportunities to join the corporate world. How would you best describe this latest group of 2023 graduates becoming the latest addition to an already competitive talent market? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit tough uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, the job market has cooled a little bit. Uh, we are seeing signs of of a recession, which we've been talking about for some time. Um, organizations are starting to get a little bit more skittish about their hiring. We're seeing some interesting trends 
of hiring trends among college grads specifically. Um, there's been some, some interesting things that we've never seen before, namely, especially in the professional sphere where organizations are offering college grads things like retainers. They're, they're paying them to start later. Um, that's something that I have never seen before in my 20 years of doing this, where they'll say, hey, we'll give you $50,000 to just cool it and start in February. Wow. <laughs> so the offer will come in now, um, but they don't want to commit to having that new grad start just now because they're worried about what the economy will be like in February, but they don't want that student or that new grad to take a job somewhere else. Um, they're canceling internship programs. So they've given people internship roles and now they're pulling back those offers. I mean, I'm hearing stories of grads interviewing for 50, 100 jobs and, and not getting an offer. So to some degree, the college grad hiring market has always been tight. It's always been kind of a slog to get that first job. But and depending on the industry that you're in, of course, this isn't universally true. But I, I think it's a little bit of a tough situation. And the thing that I always like to talk about and, and have been talking about since the pandemic started, I think it's an uphill battle for current grads to get a footing in this business world that is a hybrid and oftentimes majority remote working scenario for them. And if you think about a book like mine, they don't teach corporate in college, in which I talk a ton about how to make that adjustment from being a student to being a professional and how challenging that was for my generation and for all the generations and all the people that have come afterward. Well, if it was a challenge for us and we got to interact with people in person and learn how to read all the cues, how much of a challenge is it for people who have never done it before to figure out how to do all of those things in a world where they have no context, where everything is done behind a screen? Yeah. I think that's incredibly challenging and that's why I advise uh, all new grads and, and some new grads are rightfully and smartly saying, I want to take a job where I can at least have a chunk of time in person. I am saying that that is absolutely correct, that you should be taking a role where you can at least be guaranteed some in-person FaceTime with managers and higher ups and peers so that you can learn those assimilation skills uh, because being fully remote or fully distributed is not going to allow you to gain those foundational transferable skills that you're going to need to move forward in your career. So that is actually what I think is the bigger issue for this class of 2023. Not necessarily that they aren't going to find a job, but that they're going to find a job that's going to allow the right balance of flexibility, but also in-person time that they're going to be able to build that skill set. Right. I mean, think of 2023 graduates and how much they've gone through, how much change they've gone through in their time in traditional college. If you're thinking traditional university of four years, you've gone through that span of starting in 2019 with what we all imagine as, as traditional college in person with classes to then 2020, where it threw a wrench into the mix to 2021, 2022 and beyond, where you've now, again, gone through so much change in, into what hybrid in person means from the classroom to then jump into the corporate world, which is still trying to get its own foothold on what the right balance is. That's right. And the stress and the burnout of their higher ups. I mean, this is something that we're dealing with on a, on a macro level in the business world is that everybody who's been working for a period of time is suffering mental stress, mental burnout, 
and then you have these these new Gen Zs. Um, that's the generation that these new grads are a part of. They have the poorest mental health of any generation that we've seen that's been measured. And as you mentioned, they've they've gone through a tough time with being in college at the time that the pandemic was going on. And it's already a stressful transition anyway to move from college to career. And now you add that their managers are stressed out and not able to mentor them and guide them in the way that they normally would have. And they're making that transition and it's remote. It's just kind of a recipe for difficulties. And this is why I'm advocating to companies that this is not the time when you cut back on your employee assistance benefits, on all of the wonderful things that you were offering to employees during the pandemic, all of those wonderful wellness things that you were giving. Um, people are starting to cut back on those and this is not the right time to be doing that, especially for these entry-level hires that are so vulnerable. Right, in a challenging economic time where again, teams are tightening their belts to try to find cost savings, there are certain areas, there are certain benefits, there are certain parts of the employee experience that can't be overlooked and can't be seen as as fringe and, and worth cutting out because, again, that does have a, a massive ripple effect in the employee experience and the vitality of your employee group and keeping them invigorated, locked in, and for that newest class to come in, too, and really making sure that they're taken care of. I think what's really interesting, Alexandra, is that you wrote your first book, They Don't Teach Corporate in College as a member of Gen X and applies now to this Gen Z population that's that's now entering the workforce more than ever, right? You're learning how to exist in the corporate world coming from such a unique college experience where there was really no blueprint. So I think it's so cool to see it come full circle. Yeah. Fifth edition will, uh, 20th anniversary edition will come out in 2024, which will be very, very exciting. And yeah, I mean, we just, we keep updating it, but the core principles still remain. And uh, by the way, this is a, a shout out to all of our HR listeners that this is something you need to make sure your managers know how to handle, that when a Gen Z or anyone, but particularly Gen Zs, when they come to you and they are overwhelmed and they are suffering and it might be a crisis situation, make sure your managers know how to handle that and they are prepared with either a script or resources on the ready because I'm hearing anecdotally stories all the time of these young people who are just in way over their heads and they're coming to their managers because they don't have anywhere else to go and they're suffering and, and the managers are like scared because they know that they're legally liable. They're worried about what to say and this becomes an HR issue. So um, just kind of, a, that's just an aside that just make sure you're doing manager training on this. Right. Because again, for so many of these new employees, this is their first time in the corporate world. Mm -hmm. Understand that too. It has to be a bit of that understanding to know, okay, this is all brand new. So things that may be second nature, don't assume that, that again, they're understood and, and that they just come easily mm -hmm. to those newest members of the workforce because, again, it, it's a new world. Yep, exactly. So with this new talent class, Alexandra, what are some common skills and attributes that are setting them apart that make this latest wave of talent so exciting and different from their predecessors? And then what's going to create that competitive advantage for organizations looking for that next wave of talent? Well, I think Gen Z in, in general has a lot to offer uh, I think they are, I, it's hard to say, I mean, with the, the first digital natives, it, it sounds cliche to say that they are citizens of the world, but it, they, they truly are in the sense of they, they are wise beyond their years and they just have an all-encompassing knowledge of 
world events, of everything that's going on around them that just comes from having this constant stream of information that has always been available to them. And that gives them a perspective that we, I mean, as an example, Gen X and even some of the early millennials just didn't have at that same age. So really nothing gets by them. And this has all sorts of implications for the work world, because if you think about the way that traditional hierarchies worked, it the traditional hierarchy relied on the fact that as a young professional, you really wouldn't know very much to start. So you would have to learn from people who were more senior than you and you would do like a little bit at a time and then you would learn and then you would be gradually given more responsibility. But these young professionals, they know a lot right out of the gate. So it's a matter of they need to learn more about in specific areas, but in terms of knowledge and information, they already have a lot of knowledge and information. So it's about guiding that knowledge information and putting it to, to use in your specific scenario. So that's something that's kind of important to keep in mind. They're not like previous generations in terms of not knowing anything, <laughs> which, which I think sometimes senior leaders don't understand. The, the, it's a nuance. And I think sometimes senior leaders don't yeah. understand the difference. Um, they're citizens of the world and they, they know a lot. They're bringing a lot to the table right out of the gate. Um, I, I would mention, um, I mean, I think you, you're sort of only looking for positive attributes, but um, they are fragile emotionally. And this can be good and bad. I mean, it can be good in the sense that they're very empathetic generally, and you know, they are going to be sensitive to others' plights. They're going to look for the, the social responsibility angle, the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging angle. Um, they're going to help organizations um, in terms of their ability to be good citizens of the world themselves. Um, but also, I think that it's hard to assimilate into a corporate environment when you are sensitive and having kind of a rough time emotionally. So as I was saying a couple of minutes ago, we need to give extra care and concern to this population as they enter the workforce because it's been it's been a rough road for these kids and it's going to continue to be i'd love to say oh give them a couple years and they'll be all great and dandy that's not unfortunately tr the trajectory and i here's you know you heard it here from the futurist um that's not really what we're seeing we're seeing that this generation will continue to struggle with their mental health and we as their employers are gonna need to be prepared for that because mental health isn't something that exists in a bubble. It exists in personal lives and it's going to bleed over professionally as well. So it, it's going to be something that we can, can be beneficial to our organizations because they can show us a multifaceted way of operating, uh, but it's also going to be something that we have to, in caring for, for the holistic employee, be aware of because they're not tough as nails. Um, that's not this generation. Right. Thank you for that, Alexander. That actually leads perfectly to my next question. What are some of those skills gaps that we're seeing with this latest class entering the workforce? Again, there's there's so many great positive attributes that the Gen Z population and especially these 2023 graduates are bringing. But with those new graduates that are coming in, with those new ent entrants to the workforce, 
there's going to be some skills gaps. And we talk about upskilling quite often on the HR Works podcast and opportunities to advance your workforce. That can start from day one. So what are some of those skills that HR leaders should be thinking about training their newest employees on to really give them a competitive advantage and put them in the best position to succeed? Um, yeah, I mean, I would say I'm the two biggest skills gaps that I see in general, and this isn't just Gen Z, this is across the board. So anyone that wishes to be um, gainfully employed, and I call this career durability, so gainfully employed for the foreseeable future, um, are what I call applied technology skills, um, number one. And that means that regardless of what your job is, you're able to look around you and pick the technology that allows you to do your job more efficiently and productively. And so as AI comes on the scene more and more, you know how to wield AI and use it as a partner to do your job better. So you know when you can use ChatGPT and when you can't, what's the best use of ChatGPT? And that's just one example of one implementation. Um, Where that can be used, where that can be deployed, um, and any other app or any other type of software program um, that can be used in your job and that you're able to look three years, three to five years ahead and determine what about your job is gonna be able to be automated by a machine in the next three to five years. And that you're able to determine what are the adjacent skills that you can develop so that you're not automated out of a job. And an example of that is my own job um, as a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Having applied technology skills (laughs) means that I am saying, okay, well, I'm betting that ChatGPT will be able to write my column in the next five years. So what can I do instead? If if writing is not going to be something I can do, I better learn the editing skill. So I can will have ChatGPT writing the column, and then I will be the human eyes that learn how to edit it. Well, right now I don't have the editing skill, so I better go develop that so that um, I'm able to um, still have a job. And so that brings me to my second skill that we need, skills gap that we need to close, which is adaptability and the ability to pivot. Um, The days of having one job that doesn't change for years and years and years on end um, is people who rely on that um, are not going to be, are not going to have career durability. Everyone is going to have to be able to look ahead and figure out what their next move is going to be. Um, And I think that some people are still a little bit slow on the uptake uh, with respect to how fast they need to move, how fast they need to deploy into something else. When something isn't working, change on a dime, figure out something else. Um, And this is, I guess, what would qualify as a soft skill adaptability um, and agility. But some people have it. Some people don't have it as much. Everyone needs to become better at this. And it's one of those things that people tend to roll their eyes at me and they're like, are you kidding? Like we just survived a global pandemic and now you're telling me I need to be more adaptable. And it's like, unfortunately, yes, everybody who who wants to have career durability has to be adaptable, adaptable and has to have a growth mindset. Like it's just, it's just one of those, sorry to be the bearer of bad news or don't shoot the messenger, but it is what it is. And so one of the things about Gen Z is they're young and they're, they can be molded. And so molding traits like having these applied technology skills and having adaptability and having a growth mindset. I mean, these are things that you can teach people 
early in their careers to make sure they put front of mind and, and into their focus. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for sharing those tips. And those are great to apply, as you said, just to the entire workforce, right. not even just those newest entries. Mm -hmm. uh, but the idea of adaptability, that's a unique advantage that I think a lot of this young Gen Z class has to offer, too, is that they've been conditioned to be adaptable. It wasn't, again, like like so many of us. Again, I come from a an early millennial group where it was pretty much mapped out. You knew what your four years of college were going to look like, and you understood what starting out in an organization in the corporate world, it was a crawl, walk, run approach where you were going to learn things through time. As you mentioned, this new class is hitting the ground and walking immediately, and they're able to really step into roles and make an impact right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. That's unique, but they're also conditioned and understand that, that things aren't always going to be how you thought they were going to go. You couldn't have that five-year scope and say, I'm going to be doing the same thing. There is an adaptability piece of it. That's right. Going back to, again, your strength as mm -hmm. a futurist and having some foresight, I think that's also something that could be an advantage. Have a little bit of foresight to where you want to go and maybe where you see trends developing and set yourself up to be in a position to succeed today, but tomorrow as well. Yep. I'm excited to see what this latest group entering the workforce does with that, with that unique advantage and that unique experience that they've had coming into the working world, where again, so many of us who were in offices and did the office job pre-2020 maybe had to learn how to be adaptable in a different way than this latest class that's entering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's really great. So looking at the future and where the workplace is going, again, it, it's changing at such a fast pace that it does require us to be adaptable. What's something you're seeing as far as a common trend that's impacting workplace culture and that you see playing out in the next few years? Well, I mean, one of the biggest things that I'm seeing is this tug of war between leadership and for the most part, it's the entrenched boomer and older Xer leadership um, and employees at large around return to work um, and how, how much we need to be in office and whether or not that accurately measures productivity um, or not. And everyone always comes to me and they're like, what's, you know, how is this going to shake out? And of course, as I mentioned, I don't have a crystal ball, so I, I can't say for sure, but I kind of can. Um, and the way that this is going to shake out is that we will have a distributed hybrid work environment. Um, these companies that are saying you will work in the office five days a week from nine to five, it is enormously short-sighted. And there are many, many reasons for this. <laughs> um, and I think ultimately it will come down to the fact that it's just simply not practical. There will be another disruption that will probably be climate related. Everyone's always like, oh, Alex, what's the next disruption? I mean, again, I am not, you know, a fortune teller. I don't know. Um, but, you know, in our futurist think tanks that we were all that I was in prior to the pandemic, we had all sorts of things on the table. We had, you know climate disruptions. We had a pandemic on the table. I mean, there were all sorts of things. Like, did we predict COVID? No, but there were other pandemics that, that were there in the scenario planning. And I think that if you, if you just look at the trajectory of the climate disruptions, climate disruptions are not, are going to make it impossible to have any kind of regular expectation that people are going to be able to travel to an office five days a week, every week, <laughs> Um, and there are DEIB, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging implications of insisting that people be in an office that much 
that people are just sweeping under the rug completely when they put these mandates into place. And I mean, all you need to do is have a panel on this and you can hear the tension in this discussion when CEOs sit on a stage and try to say, yeah, we're going to mandate it. And if you don't like it too bad and people will just stand up and be like, how many people have you lost since mandating that? And are they people of color and are they women? I mean, it's like, it's so incendiary and for what? Because if you look at the data, the data does not support that people are more productive working in an office if they have to be there five days a week. So it's just, it's going to shake out. And I don't think it's going to shake out that we're all going back to the office five days a week. There will be some compromise that will come to fruition that looks sort of like sometimes we're in the office, sometimes we're not. And again, the technology doesn't, it allows for more flexibility. We did it during COVID. We're going to be able to do it again. Um, so that's kind of what I see. Um, I'm surprised that Company, some companies are pushing it as hard as they are. I think that real estate has a lot to do with it, that there's just been a ton of money sunk into commercial real estate. And so organizations are doubling down, like they got to get their money's worth or something. And sure enough, we do have to, in cities, figure out a way um, so that city infrastructure doesn't collapse to repurpose this space. But when it comes to doing what's best for our organizational culture and our employees, mandating five days a week ain't it. So we got to come up with something better. So that's the main thing. Um, and I would also say, um, you know, I, uh, I think scenario planning needs to become a really important part of every organizational culture. Um, and all this really requires is, I mean, you don't even need a futurist to do this. Just get your people together um, in key departments, like once a quarter, and do a scenario planning exercise where you just look three to five years in the future and do do some brainstorming. I mean, this is easy. This is easy to put together and just like look at the needs of your own workforce and where you see things going in, in three to five years. I mean, this can be such a powerful thing and it doesn't even need to be. I mean, one of the things that I believe about strategic foresight is that it's most useful when it goes beyond the theoretical and into the practical. And I'll just give you a really quick example of this. Yeah, let's do it. I was asked to do a, a forecast for the government in June of 2020 that was what did I think was going to happen in the workforce around now, 2023 to 2025. Now, June of 2020, we really had no idea what the pandemic was going to, how that was going to shake out. We knew there would be some kind of physical, you know, it, physically that it was going to take some lives and that it wasn't a good thing because um, we were still in the thick of it then. But um from a workforce perspective, um, my forecast involved by 2023, I was thinking that there would be um, escalating layoffs, that there would be some economic contractions that would happen from the pandemic that would result in companies laying a lot of people off around 2023. And then I also thought there would be um, a global mental health crisis because whatever physical crisis would have hopefully been over by 2023, but then we would have been through some kind of collective trauma that would result in people becoming depressed and anxious. And then I'm like, okay, from a workforce perspective, you have escalating layoffs plus global mental health crisis. But then I didn't stop there. 
I then said, okay, well, if it's 2020 now, and this is going to happen between 2023 and 2025, what can we do about it now if we know this is coming or we strongly suspect this is coming? And so I went to the National Institute of Mental Health, which is part of the National Institutes of Health here in the U.S., and I said, I would like a grant to develop a program that we can give to companies and we can give to unemployment services for all these people that are getting laid off to cope with the emotional distress associated with getting laid off. And so we were able to have three years to develop that program. Wow. And so that's the point of what I'm saying is that by doing this exercise, you have time to prepare for what might be coming. And everyone can do this within their own organization by actually saying, okay, well, it's common sense to think about, all right, well, if all of these factors are in place and that these things are going to happen, like how, how can we be prepared? I mean, in commercial real estate is a great, is a great example. I'm talking to some companies right now and I'm like, look guys, the metaverse is not a trend. The metaverse, it's not a fad. It is a trend. It's not a fad. The metaverse is the future of work. We will be living and working in virtual reality. I'm like, so as a commercial real estate organization, what are you going to do about it? Right. Think ahead here. You better be moving your butt into the metaverse. Figure out a way to get your business in there now because burying your head in the sand and assuming that your business is all in physical reality is a really quick way to get yourself out of business. Um, and are they going to take that advice? I don't know, Josh. I don't know. But we'll, we shall see. So anyway, do do uh, futurist scenario planning exercises. I love that. And back to your original point of that HR leaders can be mini futurists. They can do it. Yeah. Yeah. It, this is not a heavy lift. It really isn't. And the HR, this is another thing about HR being at the, getting the seat at the table. HR has never been in a better position. Um, we have CHROs now. HR is part of the C-suite. Get the other C-suite leaders in a, in a room for a couple hours. You can do it. I love it. Now, again, we're here with Alexander Levitt. Alexander, you recently released a new book, yeah. Deep Talent, How to Transform Your Organization and Empower Your Employees Through AI. So this is a more AI-focused mm -hmm. question. As AI is just driving the conversation right now mm -hmm. in the workplace, in the HR space, what's one misconception about AI and its role in the future of work especially regarding people operations that you wish more leaders would stop believing? Oh my gosh, so many. <laughs> I would say probably the biggest misconception is that AI is going to take all of our jobs. And also I think a lot of, I mean, you said only one. All right, I'll stop with one. Um, I could go on and on. We could have done the whole interview about this. You're free. Um, it's a podcast. Dude. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I would say the biggest misconception is that AI can replace human talent. I mean, AI, until it develops human level consciousness, which isn't coming for a really long time and might never happen. Um, AI requires really strong and consistent human oversight. Whenever you insert AI into a traditional human driven process, and I say this in both my recent books, Deep Talent and Humanity Works, you need a human being to design its role, to oversee its participation, to fix it when it breaks, to figure out how it's going to be redeployed, to explain its role to decision makers, uh, to analyze the data, to make sure it's operating as intended, 
I mean, these are a lot of people that need to be involved in that process once AI is a part of it. And those are all jobs that didn't previously exist that need to be created um, because the AI is now a part of that process. So actually, AI in, in many cases creates human jobs when it gets inserted into a human-driven process. If you're not providing your AI with proper human oversight, you are a sitting duck waiting for big trouble to come your way. So human oversight, and or we call human in the loop, um, is the most important thing that I think leaders need to keep in mind. You cannot just set and forget about your AI when you've deployed it into a new implementation or a new process. That is so well said, and I love that philosophy. That's something I certainly apply in working with AI as well. It, it's not a hands-off process by any means. There, There is human involvement in what's going into AI, no, no, on the back end to make sure that from a content standpoint, that it's good content, that it makes sense, that it all still applies, that it fits the right voice, that it fits your brand. Again, however you're applying it, there needs to be human involvement on both ends of it. And I think to your earlier point, talking about adaptability and just looking ahead to your career and, and where you can fit in, you mentioned it yourself with writing columns that you're learning to be more of an editor mm -hmm. now, but that still involves and requires the human element. Yeah, that's certainly a misconception I see is, is the feeling that it's now all of a sudden robots taking over. Uh, and I, I don't think it could be anything further from the truth if you look at it as a tool. Yep, agree. Fantastic. And what I find is really interesting, looking at the advantage to kind of bring this somewhat full circle, the advantage that Gen Z and especially this 2023 graduating class who has now had real-time experience with AI as even we're trying to figure out its role in the classroom they're not afraid of AI the way maybe some of us in the older generations are in and how it works in their working world and in the workforce. Um, they're coming in at a unique point where it's a thing. It's not kind of looming in the background and coming into and creeping into day to day. It's here. We're talking about it. So it's a unique advantage that I think this newest class has of familiarity, comfort with AI and understanding that it can be used as a tool going forward. Yeah, true. Although maybe they should be more afraid of it in a way. <laughs> true. There's. There are certainly some things that uh, that are eye-opening. Not not afraid in the sense that, but just more skeptical about its abilities, I should say. Right. Um, like, it's not... Uh, people ask me, like, oh, is ChatGPT so great? I'm like, honestly, ChatGPT is just a bot. Like, it's not revolutionary in terms of its level of intelligence. This is not artificial general intelligence. This is just... It's still just a chatbot, just so you all know. <laughs> I love that. So... So looking at, yeah. again, something that we were talking about, something that HR teams can stop believing and stop doing with regard to AI and its role in the workplace, but we had also talked about workplace culture. What's something that teams can start doing to really set their workplace culture up for the future? And again, that world where we're moving toward a hybrid workforce. Start listening and listening to people on individual and group levels, because you have the opportunity right now to build your workplace culture from the ground up. That in many cases, like we are completely starting over with workplace culture from a completely blank slate. So you can build something that just completely didn't exist before. And I think it's been disappointing to me to see this opportunity wasted when a lot of leaders will be like, well, we have this opportunity and nope, we're just gonna come in with a mandate. Like that this is what we're gonna do. And that is the opposite 
of what I would think would be the best thing to do instead, what you need to be doing is using it as a chance to talk to different groups of employees in different constituencies, and it can vary according to geography, it can vary according to demographic, according to um, underrepresented minority, and find out what do people feel is the most effective work structure and arrangement for them. Because it isn't a one-size-fits-all thing, and commuting may be more punishing for certain people than others, and for different roles, being in person might be more valuable than others. And this is something that you really need to find out, and you can only really find out by listening to what your employees have to say. It sounds like it's so obvious. And this was a chance post-pandemic when everything, all the pieces were thrown up in the air and they were all falling down and we had to put them back on the board again. It's like, why didn't every organization do that? I mean, we, we still can. It's still, I would say the pieces are still being assembled on the board now. Um, and, and I think that that's really where HR can take a lot of leadership. And I know HR is trying. I think that, again, when I come back to the, uh, the point that I made about the tug of war, I think in many ways, this is a tug of war between HR and leadership, because I, I, I see HR as being on the side of the employees in this tug of war. I think in many cases, the other side is, is the leaders who just seem out of touch with what the employees are needing and wanting. Yeah, and we always say that's the unique advantage of C-suite members of the HR community, that you really can be the conduit for what the workforce is looking for to the C-suite to really bridge that gap. Um, And what better place to do it than than in that return to work conversation that we still haven't figured out. I'll tell you that the best conversation starter and sometimes the most divisive conversation starter at a Sunday dinner table at our family dinner table is always, okay, what makes the most sense return or not return? It's rare that you get everybody on the same page and, and everyone has different opinions of what that looks like and what's the best for them or what's the best for organizations and businesses going forward. Right. Which is why you have to have the conversations and you have to find out what, what is the truth of the matter for your workforce and build your culture from there because it's going to vary. And it probably does involve a hybrid of some sort and some flexibility. And again, there's no reason why some jobs have to be done mostly in person. Um, But even then, I mean, I was saying before the pandemic, I was a big advocate for frontline workers having flexibility because many organizations with that had a lot of frontline workers like healthcare and and retail would always say to me, oh, we can't offer our frontline workers flexibility because they have to be there. And it's like, yeah, but what's preventing you from giving shift flexibility and like letting them pick their own shifts? Like, I just don't buy these like very rigid points of view, like no flexibility for these people because they have to be there in person. It's like, just think out of the box a little bit. Like, just... Right. There's flexibility in there. We had to think out of the box in 2020 when everything got turned exactly. upside down. So exactly. That's right, Josh. And it's just, again, being yeah. comfortable not going back to what was previously done, but coming up with a new blueprint. Yep. Exactly. Being right. mini futurists in yep. a sense. All right. Well, fantastic. Mm-hmm. Look, Alexander Levitt, workforce consultant, author, speaker, and founder and CEO of Inspiration at Work. We'd mentioned you had just released your latest book, Deep Talent, How to Transform Your Organization and Empower Your Employees Through AI. 
is there anything you'd like to share with our audience about the book or anything you're excited that you're working on and certainly give our audience a, a way to get in touch with you and learn more? Uh, sure. Well, I am on, um, I'm on Twitter at a Levitt. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. If anyone would like to connect there, uh, my website's alexandralevitt.com. And I would say, um, if you have any questions about the book, um, which is deep talent, if you would be interested in providing feedback on anything you'd like in the new edition of they don't teach corporate in college, we have the 20th anniversary edition coming out next year. Um, and yeah, I would just, I'm always, looking to hear from HR people um, regarding the uh, the program that we have um, that is targeted to people who are getting laid off to help with their level of emotional distress. Um, we're looking to get feedback from HR people about whether they would be um, amenable to receiving such a program. Um, if you'd be interested in chiming in on that, um, we'd love to hear from you there too. So um, my website's a good way to communicate with me about virtually anything. So I'd love to hear from you. Thank oh, you. Fantastic. And as I mentioned at the top, if you're involved in the HR space, if you're interested in thought leadership around people operations, it's almost impossible not to bump into Alexander's work at some level, uh, but certainly some great opportunities to keep that conversation going. So Alexander, before we wrap up here, I'm going to make it personal for a second. You talked about really where you've seen the workforce going and being a futurist, but what's something in your past that you've maybe leaned on, some advice as a professional that has helped guide you to where you are today that you could pay forward and share with our audience of HR professionals and recruiting professionals to maybe help them out and pay it forward. Um, I would say that just be looking to make, and this, this ties back to the class of 2023, um, just be looking to make one intelligent step forward at a time. Like there's no way that we can know where the world is going to be 10 or 20 years from now, especially with things changing as rapidly as they are. So what can you do today that can move you in a sensible direction tomorrow? Um, and just look at, at goals in that way. So, you know, and, and when we look at applied technology skills or adaptability that we were talking about a few minutes ago, um, that's an example, right? So I'm looking at my Wall Street Journal column and I'm thinking, okay, well, what's an intelligent next step, given that that's probably going to be an automated situation in the next five years? All right. Well, I can today look at honing my editing skills. Like that's something I can do to be prepared for tomorrow. So what's your intelligent next step? Just pick one thing and focus on that. And that can be something that you can do personally or professionally. And it can help you from becoming overwhelmed because it's very easy in this environment to be very stressed out and to think, I don't know where my future's going. I don't know where I'm headed. I don't know what I'm going to do. And all you need to do is put one foot in front of the other. That's what I would say. So good. Thank you for sharing that one, Alexander. That That's great. Right. Break it down to simple next steps and just take that one first step and see where that leads you. I'll certainly be taking that one as well. So now look, before we let you go here, Alexandra, one last question. And we close out with all of our podcasts this way. And it's all built around motivation. Mm -hmm. So you wake up in the morning and your feet hit the floor. What's the one thing that gets you motivated to start your day? One thing that gets me motivated to start my day right now is the sun is out. I love it. I love summer more than anything. And just every day or most days, the sun being out here in Chicago and knowing that I'm going to feel it on my skin, that gets me motivated. That's a very present answer from a futurist. <laughs> I know, right? Which is oh, so good. All right. Well, look, Alexander Levitt, workforce consultant, author, speaker, founder and CEO of Inspiration at Work. 
and all all around futurist. Thank you for joining the HR Works podcast. I really hope we keep this conversation going. Uh, but until next time, thanks for joining. You're welcome. Thanks, Josh. Thank you for listening to the HR Works podcast. Be sure to check out our new episodes every Tuesday. Follow us on all major streaming platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon Audible.